Welcome to Secrets True Crime. I'm your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the story of Susan Osborne and her 14-year-old son, Evan Chartrand. They vanished from their home in the tiny Alabama community of Holtville on Memorial Day in 2017. They haven't been seen or heard from since, and their bodies have not been found. This is episode 5 of a serial podcast with each episode building upon the previous. If you have not listened to episodes 1 through 4, please stop and listen to it first or you probably won't understand what's happening in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. While this episode doesn't contain foul language, the subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. It is not suitable for younger listeners. If you know or have known Jerry, or knew Susan after she was married to Jerry, I want to hear from you. Someone knows something. The information you may think is small or insignificant could make a difference in this case, and you can remain anonymous. SecretsTrueCrime at gmail.com or the Elmore County Sheriff's Office at 334 567 55 Four, six. Today, we will be hearing from a special guest, Mark Gillespie. Mark has 35 years of experience in forensic science and investigations. He has his master's degree in forensic science and was the director of a forensic science division of a police department for many years. He's a former federal agent and has owned Gillespie Security and Investigations for 15 years now. He specializes in criminal defense investigations, cold cases, human trafficking, and missing persons. You don't have to speak with Mark Long to realize he has a huge heart and passion for victims, and I feel very fortunate he was willing to talk with me for this podcast. Ironically, while Mark lives in Texas now, he is from Montgomery and just 23 miles from the home where Susan and Evan disappeared. I want to offer a special thanks to Sheila Waisaki for introducing me to Mark. Sheila is one of my very favorite podcast hosts, as well as a private investigator. If you haven't listened to her podcast without warning, you should. Sheila takes you inside her investigation of the death of 21-year-old Lauren Agee. Lauren went camping with friends and her body was found floating in a lake. The police investigation into Lauren's death was almost non-existent. Sheila has worked tirelessly to right those wrongs, and you can follow along with her as the investigation is still ongoing. What happened to Lauren and the way her death investigation was handled by the sheriff's office in Tennessee will make you furious. Give without warning a listen. You'll be glad you did. What happened to Susan and Evan? We've already heard from family, friends, and investigators that foul play is suspected, and none of them believe that Susan and Evan are alive. Many potential theories have been discussed, and as we consider them today, you're going to hear a little more of my opinion on these things than you have in past episodes. And since I'll be speculating and offering some personal views, I'd like to begin this episode by stating that Jerry Osborne has maintained his innocence. To my knowledge, he still claims that Susan and Evan left their home with another man. Elmore County has a lot of water. 
Jerry's house is very close to the Coosa River and Lake Jordan. Susan and Jerry owned a boat. Sometime after they vanished, Jerry gave the boat away. The investigators did recover and process the boat, and they told me the boat needed some mechanical work. They didn't think the boat would have been reliable enough for someone to use to try to dispose of two bodies. They also stated they didn't find any evidence on the boat. After death, bacteria and decomposition cause gases to build up in the human body, which causes bodies in water to float. Even bodies that have been weighted down typically break free and float. The investigators searched the Coosa River using a boat equipped with sonar. While this scenario can't be completely ruled out, odds are Susan and Evan's bodies would have been found by now if they'd been placed in water. When I began to look into this case, one of the first things I heard was that their bodies may have been burned. I was instantly shocked and in disbelief that this was even a possibility. Is it even possible to burn a body, much less two bodies, in a backyard and leave no trace? I had so many questions. I turned to Google and spent many hours searching some pretty terrible phrases and reading everything I could find. I learned a few things, but the answers to my questions weren't going to be answered by Google. Sheila Wysocki recommended Mark to me, and we sat down to discuss the case. But before we hear from him, I want to give you some information to orient you to the area, Jerry's neighborhood, and his home. Holtville is a rural community, but Jerry's home is located in a subdivision. Per tax records, his lot is only half an acre, and most of the lots around him are about that same size. Some range in size up to an acre. I would estimate that Jerry's home is about 50 feet from his neighbor's. Jerry and his neighbor both have a six-foot wooden privacy fence surrounding their backyards, and they share the fence line down the left side of Jerry's lot. Jerry's house is also next to the corner of his street and a heavily traveled highway for this area. His home and driveway are visible as you drive down the road headed towards Wetumpka. My first question from Mark is one that has bothered me from the very beginning with the theory of their bodies being burned in the backyard. As far as burning the bodies, the theory is that the bodies were burned in this in the backyard. Would there not be any odor that might cause alarm? I mean, there's a house 50 feet away. Yeah, there would be a stench. It would be a, a very noticeable stench. And when I say stench, I'm not saying there will be a smell or a stinky smell. It'll be a foul smell. So yeah, I would think that if you were a neighbor... And if you were around, you would smell something fairly soon. It may not last for a long time, but that smell, that stench would be there. So there would have been a noticeable stench. I haven't heard reports of an odor like this, but if their bodies were burned late at night, it's possible this odor could have gone unnoticed. But what would it take to burn a body? How hot would the fire need to be, and for how long? Would it be possible to burn two bodies in a backyard without a trace remaining to be found? A crematorium burns at about 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. When you look at crematoriums, they have a purpose involved, and that is to burn everything into ashes. Seldom 
can a man-made fire like a bonfire be produced to match the heat of a crematorium? We're talking about a bonfire maybe being eight or 900 degrees Fahrenheit, which is almost twice the amount less than what a crematorium gets to. The process of cremation has been around for at least 2,000 years. Industrial furnaces are used in modern cremation. Most people think of cremated remains as ashes, but in reality, they primarily consist of bone fragments. As Mark noted, these furnaces reach temperatures of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and they are fueled by either propane, natural gas, or diesel fuel. When the burning part of the process is completed, you are left with a bunch of bits of bones. These bits of bones then undergo a specific process that grinds the bone fragments into what we think of as ashes. The correct term is cremains. Mark explained a little further. The thing about fires, a lot of people, especially in they're involved in criminal enterprise, they think, well, fires are going to destroy the evidence. It's amazing how resilient the body is to fire especially the teeth and our bones. To destroy the teeth, for example, you would have to probably burn and burn and burn and then grind up because you're not going to really, there's still going to be some remnants. You're also going to be able, in a number of cases, and I'm not saying every case, but you know, DNA is very resilient also, you know, even after being exposed to fire and, you know, very warm temperatures, your DNA may not be destroyed. It could be degraded, but there's a good chance that DNA can still be obtained. You live in Alabama, so you've probably burned a bunch of rubbish in a barrel or in your backyard or in a fire pit. Have you ever tried to burn documents, checkbooks, records. My point is that no matter how hard you try to burn something, things just don't burn 100%. And that's where a lot of people go wrong. They think that fire is this all-encompassing thing that's going to destroy every sign of evidence. In many cases, it just doesn't. For him to want to destroy a body he would have to do it, in my opinion, based on my experience and my knowledge of, of this, it would be a project that he'd have to undertake probably for a couple of days just to make sure that everything is gone. And then when I say everything is gone, it would also require him to most likely go through the debris after it's cooled down to see what's remaining and then start another fire or grind things up. So it's not like just going into a backyard and setting a match and letting it roar. I think that a lot of people are fooled by the weakness of fire. Take 9-11. You know, 9-11 melted iron beams, but they were still able to find human remains. So don't be fooled by fire. If I were to come there today, the first thing I would look at was that fire pit, that area. It would almost look like be setting up an archaeological dig where you've got 
screen sifters and you're just taking shovels very delicately shovels of of the soil and that whatever was burned there and you're just running it through this little sifter and seeing what remains I spoke to a woman we will call Amy Amy lives in the area and while not a direct neighbor of Jerry's when the investigators were serving the search warrant she was visiting someone who was Amy has been helpful and provided me some great information. However, she, like so many others I'm encountering, is afraid of Jerry. Amy does not want to be identified. She told me she sat in the backyard of a neighbor's home and watched the investigators remove what appeared to be ashes stored in five-gallon buckets from Jerry's storage shed. According to Amy, the investigators would then run the ashes through a sifter, She told me the investigators sifted ashes for hours. She said she saw the boat the investigators used to search the Coosa River as it was parked on the street near Jerry's house. She also saw the cadaver dogs. Amy provided a pretty detailed description of the scene at Jerry's home that day. She said it appeared Jerry wasn't allowed inside his house or in the backyard during the search warrant and that he and his parents stayed in the front yard near the road the entire time. She said his mom and dad sat in lawn chairs near the street, and she described Jerry as pacing back and forth almost constantly. Amy said he would occasionally squat down near where his parents sat. She said this lasted for hours and hours. She provided me with some photos she took that day, and I'll be sharing those on the Secrets True Crime social media accounts. I want to explore the possible details of the events if Susan and Evan's bodies were burned in their backyard. They disappeared on the afternoon or night of Memorial Day on May 29, 2017. Some type of fuel would be needed to get a fire even close to hot enough, and I believe it would take a significant amount of fuel. Either someone had a lot of fuel on hand, which would be out of the ordinary for someone to keep in their home, or they'd need to buy it. Captain Ogden and Lieutenant Evans told us that Jerry's dad was at Jerry and Susan's house the next morning on May 30th and that the remodeling project was already underway. We know that Jerry removed the hardwood flooring and painted. He later had carpet installed where the hardwood flooring had been. That means that at a minimum, he made trips to buy paint and flooring. We also know he burned or otherwise disposed of all their furniture and belongings, including Evan's mattress. Susan's daughter had her grandmother take her by their home on the morning of May 31st. Evan was supposed to have oral surgery that day, and she wanted to give him a present. The grandmother told police that Jerry was running around, working in the backyard, and was all sweaty. He wouldn't let Susan's daughter go in the house to see her dog. Mark has told us it would take approximately two days to burn a body, and that it would take a lot of work and attention to keep the temperature of the fire even close to hot enough to possibly burn a body. Even then, bone fragments would have remained and would have needed to be ground up to what we think of as ash. Let's apply these things to this speculative scenario. If someone burned Susan and Evan's bodies in that backyard, they would have needed to get the temperature of the fire to close to 2,000 degrees and keep it near that temperature for approximately two days. Even then, there would have still been bone fragments remaining. These fragments would have either had to have been gathered and removed from the property or ground up into what we think of as ash. 
We know the investigators spent a lot of time sifting ashes, and they sent some things off for testing. They told me the test revealed these things to be nothing. So we'd also need to believe that every single bone fragment was able to be found and removed from the yard. I find this to be unlikely. It sounds to me like Jerry had an awful lot going on immediately after Susan and Evan vanished. Would he have had time to burn two bodies for days? Knowing that he was also burning the furniture and remodeling at the exact same time, I find the scenario improbable. Also, if his dad was at his home the morning after Susan and Evan vanished, would he have been able to hide two bodies being burned in the backyard? The neighbors told investigators that the fires in Jerry's backyard were large and hot and lasted for days. One neighbor described how hot it was in their own backyard from the heat coming off Jerry's fire next door. I'm assuming this would be a neighbor located immediately to one side of Jerry's home. There is only one neighbor to fit this description, and it would be the house to the left of Jerry's. This is the house that shares a fence along the property line with Jerry. Another neighbor, Nikki, described the fires as large, substantial, and she said it looked like a brush fire. She said she couldn't see the fire itself because of the fence, but said the smoke was evident. Let's not forget that Jerry's home is easily visible from the well-traveled highway. The smoke would have been easy to see from there, too. Wouldn't burning two bodies in such a readily visible location be risky? What if the neighbor to the left decided to peek over the fence? What if a neighbor became fed up with all the smoke and called the fire department or the police department? What if a neighbor smelled the stench Mark told us would be present for a while? If it was as hot and large as described to me and could be mistaken for a brush fire, what if someone driving down the main highway became alarmed and called the fire department? It just seems like a massive risk and makes me have strong doubts that someone would take that risk. Another detail to note is that neither of the two cadaver dogs alerted to the burn piles. Mark and I discussed all these details, and he also doesn't believe Susan and Evan's bodies were burned in the backyard. I think burning a fire like that, as soon as you set that match, you don't know what's going to happen. So if he's got a body in a pile of debris, there's too much stuff that could go wrong that would show what he's up to. And, you know, you call, next thing you know, you call the fire marshal. They come out. They put it out. You know, the police are called. It's inviting too many eyes on an area that you don't want anyone to know about. I personally feel that if he was going to get rid of bodies, he would not have burned them on his property. Thinking like a criminal would think, if I had a body, I would not burn a body on my property. I would dispose of the body some other way. But I would immediately burn carpet, rags, towels, paper towels, blood-stained furniture, mops. Absolutely. Could it be a ruse on his part? You know, a, a tactical deception, so to speak? I, I don't know. Jerry was in the Air Force, and I'm told he later received a medical discharge. But at the time of Susan and Evan's disappearance, Jerry had a civilian job on Maxwell Air Force Base in nearby Montgomery, Alabama. The investigators quickly learned that Jerry was utilizing dumpsters on the Air Force Base to dispose of things. 
They told me that at one point they had Jerry under surveillance and they followed him to the Air Force Base. They recovered items from the dumpster that they had seen in the back of Jerry's truck earlier that same day. Holly told me that it was discovered that Jerry disposed of a lot of things in those dumpsters during the two months between when Susan and Evan disappeared to when their missing persons report was filed. Could their bodies have been disposed of in one of those dumpsters on Maxwell Air Force Base? Ironically, Mark also served in the Air Force, and at one time he was stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base. I used to be assigned at Maxwell, so knowing, being very familiar with Maxwell, I would think that even as a military member and retired military person, the last place I would go to dump something is on a military base. A, you got to get in through the gate. I mean, it's almost like 100% ID check or there's scrutiny. Well, everyone that comes in, it's not like going through a toll road and just or, or just going in through a gated community. Let open the gate and you go through. I just think there's too many opportunities for things to go wrong and too much security on a base for him to dispose of evidence like that. I mean, I think it's possible, but I'm just thinking that's risky. I have to agree with Mark here, too. It would have been a very bold and risky move to transport two bodies in the back of a truck to an Air Force base. He would have needed to move the bodies from the vehicle and place them in the dumpster without being seen. He would have also needed to conceal the bodies in the dumpster so that they weren't readily visible to others who might come along and use the dumpster after him. Another possibility is the bodies could have been taken somewhere and either buried or left in a location they'd be unlikely to be found. Sheriff Bill Franklin mentioned that Jerry made some unusual searches on his computer, but he didn't reveal what these searches were. The investigators have searched several locations in the general area, but nothing was found. Could Jerry's internet search history provide some clues to other locations that could be searched? Could Jerry have been looking for locations to dump their bodies? I don't yet know the answer to this question, but I know that it is one that weighs heavily every day on Susan and Evan's loved ones. Join us next time on Secrets True Crime. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, please let us know by giving us an excellent rating and review in Apple Podcast. If you have any information that could help in solving the disappearance of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand, please call the Elmore County Sheriff's Office at 334-567-5546. You may also email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com. I'm active on social media and often share photos of Susan and Evan. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. The audio editing and post-production for this show is by Kane Power at overnightaudio.net.